Well, I'm glad to be home. Uh, for you that don't know me, my name is Dan Clancy. I've been here for a long time, so you should know me. But uh, I just got back last night, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning from Cuba. And uh, wow, it was a great eight days. And it was a hard eight days. You've heard our stories. We've told you what, what's going on over there. And I would love to take you there. And some of you might be like, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. I don't know if that trip's for me. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to unpack it for you. But let me tell you a little bit about our week, first of all. We woke up early, 4 o'clock in the morning um, last Friday, and we went up to Cleveland to catch our air f our flight down to um, Florida, then Florida to um, Santa Clara, Cuba. And when we got there at 4.30 in the morning, the first thing they told us is, your flight's been canceled. We're like, well, it would have been nice if we'd have got some notifications here, you know. We bought the tickets and all that. And there's a lot of people that are around us hearing this news at the same time we are. We're like, well, what happened? What's going on? And supposedly there was a, a, a water main that broke in, uh, in, in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, shut down the city, the airport, et cetera, et cetera. And we're thinking, man, we've, we've got to get there. They're waiting for us. You know, it's Cuba. It's not like we can call them. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of moving parts here. So that's a great thing about living today. You could, uh, all, t all of us are on our phones figuring out how, to, how in the world are we going to get to Fort Lauderdale. Like, if we can get to Fort Lauderdale, maybe we can get our connection and still get in Cuba. So anyway, we went through everything that we could do. And finally... We had to go to another airline. We went to the other airline and said, well, we can, we can get you guys in, but you're going to have to separate into at least two groups. And we're like, okay, we'll take it. We'll take whatever you've got. We're going to get in. We're, so we, we get there. One group gets in at 8 o'clock at night. One group gets in at 11. We missed the flight that would connect us to Cuba. We have to stay in Fort Lauderdale in a hotel. We have to arrange transportation to get to this place, get hotels, get back to the get back to the airport. And God's just fighting. I mean, uh, Satan's just fighting us like crazy, whether or not we um, should go there. And so anyway, we, we rebook our, our schedule there. We get there, and you couldn't, you, you couldn't see anything. It was coming down so hard. And we're in 1950-type vehicles. And so they put our luggage on top of the um, vehicles there from 1950. We're all strapped down. We're in this vehicle. And, I mean, there's no seatbelts. There's, like, it hadn't been invented yet. And so we're, uh, we're there. And, I mean, we're like, how in the world can they even see and, I mean, it's just coming down that much. We get to the campus, and, I mean, lightning is hitting everywhere, right and left. And, I mean, we're jumping every time that these lightning strikes are hitting. So, finally, we're talking, and uh, the, I see from the light switch all this 
sparks. So one looks at the, 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 the lights, they're seeing all this smoke. And someone's looking out the window and they see this massive blast outside the window. But lightning had hit. And I thought to myself, the power was already out. And I thought to myself, it's not going to come on this week. I mean, this is, too, this is too big of a storm. I think it just hit the whole electrical system, and it is blown. And so it was weird getting ready for camp. You know, I went shopping, and as, as I was going shopping, I would be like, oh, this would be nice to have. And not things that I needed. I'm just picking things up on church credit card. Um, <laughs> It's always nice when you have it. And so anyway, I'm in Dollar General, and they have these, like, glow sticks for a dollar. dollar. And so I'm like, oh, we're going to be doing two camps. There's 400 kids. You know, let me me get up these glow sticks. Power is knocked out. And we're supposed to be having services at 8.30. Well, in Cuba, 8.30, it's dark, okay? And we're out in the countryside. It's really dark and so we're handing out the glow sticks and they had never seen them before this is this is this is brand new they're like how does this work you crack them and it starts lighting and they're making necklaces and putting them in their hair anyway the next thing that happens we start worshiping no power no lights just 200 of the most unbelievable voices, lifting their voices to God. And if you were there, you just felt something that you don't always feel. You felt the Spirit of God moving. It's pitch black. You can't see anything except the glow of the glow sticks. But you hear these voices lifting up the Lord. And I was thinking to myself, Wow, this is why Satan didn't want us here. This is going to be an incredible week. You know, if I had a seatbelt, I'd be strapping it in there. But it was just a great week. And uh, God just did some incredible things. And the weird thing is uh, we didn't know. We took some very, very ordinary people with not a lot of skills, not a ton of Bible knowledge, and we placed them in a situation where God was going to have to do something or nothing was going to happen. We had two pastors with us that, that, that helped. Me and Alex were there. But I'll tell you about the, the trip as we go along in the sermon. But today, I want to go to Acts chapter 5. In my life, there's been a few things that have affected me greatly. Reading God's word. The second thing is reading a book called The Life That God Blesses. If you haven't read it, it's by Gordon MacDonald. Changed my life. And then there was a book, um, which most of you have read, Don't, Don't Waste Your Life by Piper. But when it, about 19... 89, I'm old. Um, I was in California. I was a youth pastor out there. I was coaching football in the public high school there, teaching algebra. 
And uh, I'm reading this book. It was Friday Night Lights. It was, became a movie and all this. And they called me. And they, the, the church and the community and all that, they're like, hey, we would like you to come from California, to come to Texas, to start working in this youth group with our with this football team, and uh, I mean, for me, you know, I loved football, I love youth ministry, combining the two, this is just, you know, this would just be an incredible thing, and so I take this job, and they're like, you have to be here by January 1, and I'm like, it's Christmas time, I want to, I was single at the time, they're like, I really want to be with family or something. They're like, oh, we need you here. You got to get here. You know, first Sunday we want you to be here is December the 27th. And so anyway, I'm driving in my van and they bring, they, they send me all these packages and, you know, for me to have Christmas in my U-Haul truck. You know, I decorated the truck and I'm going through and I'm listening to all these songs like, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And I'm like crying and I'm like, I'm all alone. I'm going to another city. And I call, you know, at a restaurant somewhere in Arizona. I call my family, and they're all having Christmas meal. And I'm still driving to Odessa, Texas. But one of the things, they all gave me gifts. The staff that I was going to, one of the staff members gave me a cassette. You remember when cassettes were around? He gave me a cassette, and it was by a Presbyterian preacher. And I was like, oh, man, you know, when I think of Presbyterian preachers back then, I was like, oh, you know, I heard the most unbelievable sermon that changed my life. I listened to it over and over and over again. I've listened to it at least 20 times. And I am going to try to do justice to what I had learned in that U-Haul van some 30 years ago and apply it to our lives. And, you know, so let's pray. Let's get going. God, again, we ask you to do incredible things, Lord. I know that I'm tired today. I'm a little bit raw. I'm a little bit emotional. I might not be able to read as well as I want. But, Lord, I give it over to you today. If anything's going to happen, it's going to be because of you, just like in Cuba. Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for the examples. Lord, may you challenge us to live the life that you want us to live. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I am deeply and personally convinced that the Christian life is supposed to be an exciting and joyous experience. I think we're supposed to be living lives that are thrilling to behold exciting to watch, and very, very enthusiastic. I think that's what the Christian life is supposed to be, and not only in our dreams, but in reality. And so today, I'm going to talk to you this. Jesus, on the night that he's going to be betrayed, what does he say? Knowing what was ahead of him, this is what he says to his disciples. He said, these things have I said that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. I look at Stephen in the Bible. He was the first m martyr. At the very moment that the stones were hitting him, 
and crushing the very life out of him, what does he do? He lifts up his eyes and he sees his risen Savior. And he praises the Lord. And he starts praying for the forgiveness of the people that were taking his own life from him. Then I look at Paul and Silas. Here they are in prison. It's recorded that what they do is they don't cry, they don't moan about the situation that they're in. Is what they do is they give themselves to a hymn sing right there in the prison. Then I look at John, the writer of Re Revelation. He has a faith that is so awesome that to deal with them, they place them in exile. They put them on this little island, zip code 0000. It's a shrubby little island off of Asia Minor. But on that island, he sings a song that is so full of faith that the very book vibrates when you read it. And when you look at this passage here in Acts chapter 5, the disciples, what you just read, they were arrested. They were arrested for pro proclaiming the gospel. They're brought before the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they're rebuked, they're told not to speak of them again, and what do they do? The Bible says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin in verse 40, 41, 42, rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of the suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that kind of living isn't cool. That kind of living is red hot. And that's the kind of life that I want to have. That's what I want to invest my life in. Now, I can understand why non-Christians live the way that they do. But I cannot understand why we that know Christ live lives that are complacent. I don't understand that. Christianity is not a good hobby. It's not a good hobby. I mean, I would rather go out and be a, get a boat on the weekends. Let me get out on a boat, enjoy the boat and all that, not just to be sitting and listening and going through the same motion and doing it all over again. But we are not supposed to be of the legions of the unjust. Now, I say that, and it's not original with me. When I lived out in California, I, I tried all these different things. Skydiving, I was single. I, wanted, I was so close to the beach, I'd be by the beach on the weekends and doing my thing on my time off. But the writings, the, the saying, the legions of the jazz are from a, writings of a guy named um, Phil Edwards. Now, let me tell you about this Phil Edwards. He says this, there's a need in all of us, he says, for controlled danger. There's a need for an activity that puts us on the edge of life. There are uncounted millions of people right now who are going through life without any real vibrant kick. And Phil Edwards say, I call them the legions of the unjust. Now this article that I read was in the time that I was in California, and he was talking he wasn't talking about Christianity. What he was talking about was 
surfing. He was a world champion surfer. And I think that if you give me a few moments through this sermon, what I want to convince you that what we're supposed to be doing, and I say this with all reverence, is we are supposed to be riding through life on a surfboard with God. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but in order to surf, which I never got good at it, I'm, my body's just not built for it, uh, you have to do two basic things in, to be able to surf. First one is if you want to be able to, if you want to surf, you have to get out there where the big waves are. That's rule number one. You have to get out there where the waves are. And that's exactly, you can't spend your time piddling around on the beach, on the little pools that are going on. You have to get out there where the big white water is. And that's exactly what we see in the scene that is before us today. These disciples were out there where the white water was. They were heralding the good news. And that word herald means this. It's like blowing a trumpet. They weren't only laying their lips down for the cause of the gospel. They were laying their very lives down for the gospel, the good news. They were making a big noise for the sake of Jesus Christ. And we see in the passage that I just read, they were arrested. They were arrested for their witness. And they were brought before the Supreme Court. And now the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, I would compare them to the legions of the unjust. They were made up of two different groups. They were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were those who never get into the water at all, except up to their knees. And the Pharisees didn't get in the water up at all, but they could build the best sand castles on the whole beach. And so you see this vivid contrast. We have the beachcomber patrol brigade, and then you see the disciples. The disciples were bearing witness. They were doing big things. They were laying their life down. They were whitewater people. I don't know if there's any people out here you like rafting and stuff like that. I love adventure. I love anything that I might possibly die in. That's exciting to me. It makes me want to wake up. The rest of the stuff, I'd just surf on channels and stuff like that. But they were not the legions of the unjust. Now, in the New Testament, the word witness, we translate martyr. Again, like I said, they were laying their lives down for the cause of the gospel. So the Sanhedrin gets together, and they're discussing the case that's going on here. And the man that addresses him, his name is Gamaliel, the passage talks about. And he's a distinguished man. Everyone respects him. Everyone likes him. And he's distinguished because he can make the best sand castles of anyone. And so he goes on and he tells this story. And he says in verse 38, he says, if what these men are doing is not of God, then it will fail. And we need not to oppose it. On the other hand, if what these men are doing is of God, then our opposing it will not stop it anyway. And then he goes on, he says, therefore, the best thing that we can do, and this is definitely the counsel of the legions of the unjust, he said the best thing that we can do is nothing. 
And that was their frequent answer. So they beat the disciples up a little bit and let them go on their way. Now, I think it's important to notice that they beat the disciples up a little bit. When you get into the white water, when you get, how many of you like to, you've been at least body surfing before? Like you go to the ocean and you throw yourself into the waves and you ride it. When you get into those big waves, you can expect one thing. You can expect to get beaten up a little bit. Amen? Have you done that? You get into one of those really, truly great ways, and it seems like it grabs you. It lifts you. It rolls you up in a little ball, and it throws you over and over and over again, and you're getting closer to that shore where you don't know where the sand is and where the sky is. And these long, bubbly fingers of turbulence reaches down for you. It's a rough and it's a tough experience. But it locks you into life. And that's what's happening to the disciples right here in this passage. They were white water people. They were locked into life. There was a youth pastor in Philadelphia. He had a man come up to him and he said, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you'll help me solve my problems. If you help me get rid of my anxieties, my fears, my doubts, my challenges, I'd like to avoid all these things. If you help me, I'll give you $1,000. And he was immediately interested in the proposition. He was a youth pastor. They don't have any money. So the youth pastor asked him a question. He said, would you like to get rid of all the difficulties that you face? All the problems that are yours, all the traumas which confront you, would you like to get beyond all those things? And the man said, yes, that's exactly what I want. He said, then this is what I want you to do. I want you to go in your car, and I want you to go 11 blocks straight ahead down Glendale Avenue. I want you to turn right 11 blocks south. Then I want you to notice that on the left-hand side, you will see a road. And on the left-hand side of that road, you will see some very tall wrought iron fences. You will now be at Forest Lawn Cemetery. There are 52,000 people there, and none of them have any problems. None of them have any difficulties. None of them have any fear to be alive is to have problems. To be alive is to confront these things, these difficulties. To be breathing, we do that. The question then becomes for all of us is, what do we want to spend our lives on? What problems? There's all kinds of problems that we could spend our time upon, our months upon. There's issues that we have. Are we going to get involved in the important things? Or are we going to just put a little around on the shore? Are we going to get out there where the white water is and confront the big issues? And the disciples in this passage rejoiced. They rejoiced because they counted themselves worthy. They were of the difficulties, of the suffering, where the big 
issues are in verse 41. Now, when I was a football coach out in California in 89, I was in a little town called Ridgecrest. It's been in the news the last couple weeks. You remember the earthquakes that struck out there. But I was a youth, youth pastor out there, and I coached for Burroughs High School. And we're in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It is really hot. I kid you not, most days in August, it was like 110. When the kids say, Coach, I need a drink of water, we had to get them a drink of water really, really quick. Wearing those helmets on, it was like 120 degrees out there. But the thing about it in practicing football in August they did not want to practice. It was just so hot. It was where the Naval Weapons Center develops all of their weapons. Most people don't even know that city exists because everything is developed out there, top secret things. Literally, almost everybody in that town are rocket scientists. I mean, all of their moms and dads were Val Victorian salutatorians. A tremendous pressure on the kids to succeed. We were great at the skill positions, but when it came to having some big bodies, most of them, the genetics just weren't there. So, I'm out there. I'm coaching. And these kids, they don't want to practice. And I thought to myself, this is exactly the way it is in church. It's exactly the way it is for you. It's exactly the way it is for me. You know, they were tired of practicing. They were tired of hearing great plays, and if you just do this, these things are going to happen. You see, what they needed wasn't another play. What they needed wasn't another offense. What they needed was for me to schedule scrimmage games. They needed to get out there where the white water was. They needed to get bruised. They needed to get beat up. They needed to get their butts kicked sometimes. Then they wanted to practice. And that's exactly what happened this week when we went to Cuba. The first day, it didn't go so great. We're just figuring it out. We're adjusting. We're like, maybe we need to put this person here. Maybe we need to do this. Maybe we need to do that. But that is where... The action is. And that's what the kind of life I want all of you to have. A lady was going to the Washington Zoo. And she saw the monkeys. And the monkeys were playing with dice. And she was so concerned that the monkeys were playing with dice that she went to the zookeeper. And she said, hey, the monkeys are playing with dice. You need to do something about it. And he was like, they're just playing for peanuts. The only way, there's so many Christians that are just playing for peanuts. The only way you feel this is when you get out to where the big issues are. And that's the first thing you have to do to surf. The second thing you have to do if you want to learn how to surf is once you get out there where the white water is, where the big issues are, you have to be impulsive enough to lean into the waves. Now note, that's exactly what the disciples did. It wasn't just getting out there. It's doing the job once they were out there. It was like leaning into the waves. You know, 
I don't know about you, but again, I'll compare it to going to Cuba, is sometimes I would ask people to do something, and you know what their response to me was? I don't know if I'm comfortable in doing that. And that's exactly where I wanted them. I'm like, good, because you're going to have to rely on the Lord. You want to know what happened as a result of that? thrilled they were thrilled it was exciting was it perfect no it wasn't perfect were they were they perfect no could someone have done it better yes but see they were leaning into the waves to lean into the waves to what the surfer calls the curl it's where the waves build up and you ride behind the wave And just as the wave is beginning to crest, you climb on top of of that wave. You climb on top of that crest, and you begin to ride the curl. And when you do that, you can hear the roar of the entire ocean behind you. Can you hear it in your ears right now? You can hear the roar because the ocean understands you to be in a race with it, and you're winning. The surfboard trembles at your feet, and it sounds like 10,000 yards of tearing silk. It's a tremendous hiss, and you begin to experience something very, very awesome. You're riding the curl of the wave, but to do it, You have to be impulsive enough to lean back into the wave. And in church, I know this from 36 years, there is a lot of people against being impulsive. If Mary wasn't impulsive, she would have never have broken that alabaster box and anoint Jesus' feet with that precious oil. If the four men were not impulsive, they would not have tore that roof apart to bring their, bring their friend to the healing hands of Jesus. Matthew would have never left the, the, the tax ledgers and the coins behind to follow Jesus. Livingston would have never went to Africa and lost himself in the wilds of Africa. Damien would have never went and served lepers until he himself became one. That's impulsive. The Christian experience is supposed to be one of enthusiasm. And that's what I find in the New Testament. And that is the life that we are supposed to live. It wasn't just for them. It's for us. I'm going to give you a brief word of witness in my life. And I've told you about this. Is... When I have risked myself in something, I have found great excitement and great drama. My biggest regret in life, I've told you this last time I preached, my biggest regret is I went on a missions trip in Africa one time and the president of Kenya asked me to stay and disciple um, these kids that were in the school where they made perfect grades. And I was so afraid and I was, didn't want to be alone and I was single, I didn't want to go there and I said no. 
and I've regretted that for 30 years. Tennyson wrote it a long time ago, and it's been quoted so often, we often miss the sense of it. But he said this, and let me say it again today so slowly that we do not miss the meaning of it. He said it is better to have loved and to have lost than never to have loved at all. And like I said, I can't understand to this day why. Why are we complacent? We exercise our faith every day. Every time you step on the brakes, that's an act of faith. When you bring a child into this world, that's an act of faith. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if that child is going to be perfect in every way that you want them, want them to be. When, I, when you say, I do, at the marriage altar here, you don't know what 10 years later that marriage is going to be like. It's an act of faith. It's trusting. It's a very beautiful thing. But if we get involved in faith in every dimension of our life, then why when it comes to the really big things, why do we shrink away? Why do we pamper ourselves? It takes commitment. It takes loyalty. It takes discipline. But what are the results? The results are and I said I'm a little raw, so let me get the results of living that type of life is 10,000 yards of tearing silk. It's an exciting life to live. I think of a deacon who got a call one night. He was in Pittsburgh. He just moved here from Pittsburgh. He was in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh had undergone a terrible ice storm. Police cars weren't moving, ambulance weren't work, out on the street, and there was a pastor. He gets a call from someone in his church. The family didn't have a car, and their little boy had leukemia, and his fever started spiking, and they needed to get him to the hospital. The hospital called and said, we can't send the ambulance, but you need to get him here immediately. The pastor felt bad because his car was in the shop. So he called a deacon in his church. He was a white water person. He was one of those people that you could count on. He, 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 didn't, he didn't worry about the cost of something. So he gets in his car to go take this little child to the hospital. And there was ice everywhere. Before he even got to their house, he got in three accidents. Three little minor accidents. The only way you could stop the car is by the natural things around them. And so he gets to this family, he's got the little boy, and he's all wrapped up in blankets. The mom gets in the front with the little boy, the dad in the back, and they inch their way down the valley to the hospital. And the deacon is getting in these little accidents going to the hospital, and he's deciding whether I should go to the right, whether there's a... Up, there's an incline, or should I go down uh, to the, the opposite direction? And when he looks to his right, he notices the little boy. The little boy's face was flushed with fever. His eyes were wide with fear. And he looks at the little boy, and the little boy says to him, Mister, 
Are you Jesus? You know, at that moment, it's what happens when you're tired. You get in, in at 2 o'clock in the morning. You can laugh at that. <laughs> but this is what happens, you know. It's like at that moment, that man, that deacon, he could have said yes. Because he was Jesus. This is what people that God is calling us. He's calling us into people's lives. Now, people who piddle around on the shores, they can never know a life like that. They know safety first instead of savior first. They know thrift first instead of tithing first. Business first instead of blessings first. Family first instead of faith first. They never realize that they have to deal with these big, rough, and tough issues. They, never, they have to deal with a God who reaches down in the midst of life, and he takes hold of things. And sometimes when we're involved in things like this, we get very black and blue and bruised. But out of those bruises comes blessings. The greatest moment that you can ever know in surfing, which I never got to it, but I read about it, is when you get a hold of one of those great waves in the Pacific Ocean. And if you're riding the wave properly, not only can you crest the wave, the curl, but if you turn to the other side, and lean into the wave, the wave curls over your head. And you find yourself in a tunnel of water. It swirls all around you. It's like a whirling green cathedral. The water is so thin that you could see the sunlight coming through. It's absolutely silent in there. It's like a life that is sparkled with green diamonds. And if you lean against that wall of water, it lifts you and it carries you like a pillow. You can never know that in your Christian life. You can never know what it's like to be carried. You can never know what it's like to be in a whirling green cathedral. You can never know life with sparkling green diamonds. You can never know that until you're in the midst of the wave, until you say yes to Jesus. And at the end of the day, you drag yourself out of the water, you get your surfboard, you ram it down into the sand, you fall down in front of the surfboard, you lean back against the surfboard, and the roar of the ocean is suddenly silent now, as if to acknowledge the fact that you have defeated it. The sun is setting, it's cuffing itself across the ocean, and right at your feet, you're utterly exhausted. You're exhausted. 
every filling in your teeth is loose. It's not that you're weary of what you've been doing, but that you're weary in it. And any Christian who has been involved in whitewater activity knows what I'm talking about. It's never that you're tired of serving the Lord, but oh, sometimes you're weary in it. Right, Judy? You were tired sometimes, but it's a magical time. It's a time when it seems like it makes the whole ride, which we call life, worth living. I know a lot of people who have their lives planned out. My friend, I just spent time with him. He's a multimillionaire. God bless him. I'm glad he's doing so well. We got together. And you know what the biggest concern in his life was? Flights. He's like, Dan, I have to buy a private jet plane. I hate waiting on flights. I thought to myself, wow, that must be a really tough life you're living. (laughs) And I told him, I said, you know, I almost said his name. I said, you know, I'm going to Cuba in a couple weeks. It only costs $1.50 to send a kid camp for a whole week their life be changed dollar fifty is it how much your jet cost that you're looking at he says a couple couple a million dollars a year i'm part of i have to be part of the club and i'm like oh hmm. Hmm. my life his life hmm. but you can never know there's a lot of people who have their lives planned out. Nice little job, nice little marriage, two nice little kids, nice little boy, nice little girl, nice little retirement plan, nice little house with a nice little two-car garage with a nice little car on each side of it, nice little place to go in the summer or if you prefer, a nice little place to go in the winter. And you know what is at the end of the story? A nice little hill with a nice little mound upon it with a nice little stone on the mound with a nice little name on it and nice few dates underneath of it. And you know what will have happened? You will have pampered yourself into mediocrity when you could have forgotten yourself as a pastor. And I say to me, don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, be part of the legions of the jacks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for letting us be born into this great nation. Thank you for the things that we take for granted. But you tell us in your word that we have a responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And Lord, I love these people. 
I love being a pastor here. Thank you so much for placing me here. And thank you for letting me be part of a church that cares about this community, about this world. But Lord, I pray that in our life as we get older or as we're younger or as we're going through financial difficulties, we don't limit you. Lord, I pray that there'll be people in this room today that will begin to say yes to you and yes to what you want in their life. And even though maybe the first half of their life wasn't so exciting, maybe the last half can be. For our college students, Lord, I pray that they would shake it up in their school this year. For our students that are enjoying their summer this year, we pray that you would make a big difference. Again, Lord, we give you our lives. We're so thankful for who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name.